Welcome to Sparks of History, where world history and Jewish history meet. We're honored today to have with us Professor Tim Blanning. Professor Blanning is Professor Emeritus of Modern European History at Cambridge. And uh, he is the author of numerous books, including Joseph II and Enlightened Despotism, The Origins of the French Revolutionary Wars, The Pursuit of Glory, Europe 1648 to 1815, The Triumphs of Music, The Rise of Composers, Musicians, and Their Art, as well as um, many other uh, books and uh, research papers. And today we will be discussing Professor Blanding's fascinating work, Frederick the Great, King of Prussia, which you see right here. Um, it is, as you can tell, a um, comprehensive uh, work on Frederick the Great and can be acquired, I assume, as I did on Amazon, easy way to purchase it. Um, so again, we're, we're delighted to have Professor Blanning with us and we'll get right to it. Um, just to start off, please, a little bit about your background and how you became interested in Frederick the Great. Well, it, uh, yes, it goes back a very long way. Um, I've always been interested in Germany and German history. In fact, uh, that goes back as far as it can, really. I was born in April 1942 um, in a nursing home in Wells, it's a cathedral city some 15 miles or so south of Bristol. And the uh, German Air Force was bombing Bristol that night, bombing it so heavily that the windows of the nursing home where I emerged into the world were shaking, at least so my mother told me. So you can say that uh, an interest in Germany and I go back together. Um, I'm being slightly facetious there, but not entirely, because uh, my, the year of my birth, if you can, <laughs> I'm probably addressing an audience who are all much younger than I am, but um, if you can imagine being born in 1942, growing up in the 1940s, then of course I was growing up among people who had been directly involved in the Second World War. My father actually wasn't, he was um, disabled, he had a permanently stiff leg as a result of a sporting accident and so could not serve. But uh, many of his friends whom I met in my childhood had served, including one I remember in particular who'd been a tail gunner um, in Lancaster's uh, bombing Germany back, as it were. It was just about one of the most dangerous occupations in the RAF, which is, which is saying something. So I was brought up um, in an environment where the war was very recent. And of course, the discovery of the camps and all the other atrocities committed by Germans uh, was very fresh in the mind. And so it was a mixture of sort of horror and fascination, uh, which drew me to Germany in the, and German history in the first instance. History was always my best subject at school. So, um, of course, I was drew, drawn to that. In fact, I think that one of the very first books I bought was Hugh Trevor Roper's book, The Last Days of Hitler. I've still got it. It's almost fallen apart. I was paid back, pan edition, but I've, I've still got it. Uh, so that's how it, that's how it all started. Uh, then it, it went up a notch uh, when I started studying German at school at the age of 13. And then I, when I was 14, I went on an exchange visit with my school to Hamburg. Uh, that was 1956. 
Uh, and I was absolutely fascinated by it. It was so different. I'd been brought up in a small village in Somerset in the southwest of England, um, only been to London once and then only very briefly. So to go to Hamburg uh, was so different from everything I'd experienced, even the smells. I remember especially the smell of cigar smoke. You don't get that much these days. But uh, in 1956, I can tell you, Hamburg was absolutely thick with cigar smoke. So I was absolutely fascinated by that. Uh, shall I go on? I don't want to talk too much if you have some questions. No, I mean, no, no it, it's, it's, it, it's, it's fascinating. I, I was also... Um, uh, OK, well, I'll, I'll cut it short. Otherwise, we should be at this for several hours. Uh, so I, I studied uh, German at school. I went back to Germany every year. I've been, I've been in Germany every year since 1956, apart from 2020, because, of course, the plague had uh, closed everything down. Uh, I, I didn't read German at university, at Cambridge. I, I read history, but was with a heavy concentration uh, on German history. And prior to going to Cambridge, I spent a term at a school in uh, Nuremberg. At the, it was called the Neues Gymnasium. Um, a very good school it was, actually. And I, my German improved um, rapidly as a, as, a, as, a, as a result. So when I came to, do, to be, embark on doctoral research, uh, it had to be a German subject. Um, I had spent quite a lot of my time when at school in Nuremberg um, hitchhiking, which one could do with impunity in those days, around Bavaria and Franconia and got very interested in the art and architecture of the 18th century. Um, of course, there's some wonderful examples around there. If you've seen Heiligen, for example, north of Bamberg, one of the great Baroque buildings of Europe, that's saying something. Um, so I, that got me into the 18th century, but very much into the um, Southern uh, and Catholic and Baroque uh, culture. I'm not a, not a Catholic myself. Um, indeed, I'm not a believer, but uh, I, I was absolutely, absolutely bowled over, overwhelmed by, the, by this cultural experience, a cultural shock when coming from a country where almost every church was either in the Gothic style or in the neo-Gothic style. So that got me into the 18th century, and it was from there is a rather long-winded answer to your question. From then, inevitably, anyone who gets into Germany in the 18th century will encounter the towering figure of Frederick the Great of Prussia. Let, let, let's, um, if you can, set the scene. Europe, 18th century. Frederick's father is king, and what does Europe look like at that point before Fred, as Frederick becomes king? Well, it would be very helpful to have a map at this point. Unfortunately, the map behind me is, I should have picked a better one. It's actually okay. St. Petersburg, uh, as it was in the middle of the 18th century. But um, I should have picked a map of Germany, which would have made it easier. It, it is extremely difficult, um, even, with the, even with visual aids, to give an impression of the confusion, or apparent confusion, of uh, the Holy Roman Empire of the German nation, which is what we must call Germany, given its full title in the, in the 18th century. It had been there for a, almost a millennium until it was killed off by Napoleon in 1806. Uh, there we have Germany divided into, well, depends how you count them, but certainly around about 300 different territorial principalities. If you include the free imperial knights, as you should, then you get up to over a, a thousand. Um, perhaps even as far as 2,000. No one can really count them. So it's, it's a kaleidoscope. It's nothing like Europe we see today, Central Europe that we see today. But um, among 
these this myriad of states of various kinds, free imperial cities, ecclesiastical states, uh, and so on. Uh, one or two of them stood out as a result of historical accident and design. Uh, one of a half a dozen dynasties had emerged to be to, at, at the top of the heap, and among them were the Hohenzollern family of Brandenburg, and then from 1701, they called themselves kings in Prussia. So uh, Frederick, when he came to the throne in 1740, he was the third king in Prussia. Um, he'd been preceded by his father, Frederick William I, who died in 1740, uh, and his grandfather, who um, had died in 1713. So um, the kingdom of Prussia is a relatively recent state, although the electorate of Brandenburg, which was subsumed within it, uh, was very much older. And, and the other countries that we're going to be talking about, the major powers? Oh, I see. Right. Well, in, in, from that point of view, things are perhaps not so different as they are today. The, the, the standout great powers by the time Frederick came to the throne in 1740 uh, were Great Britain, France, the Habsburg monarchy, not really Austria because it was uh, an empire which spread across pretty well all of Europe, but centered on Vienna. Um, Spain is still quite important, although sliding um, quite quickly down the tubes. Um, same goes for Poland. Um, and of course, the, the great colossus of the East, Russia, which under Peter the Great, who had died in 1725, had emerged with a great bang at the expense of Sweden as the great power in Eastern Europe. Why was Frederick um, such a compelling historical figure. I, I believe, if I remember correctly in the book, um, you allude to the fact that the title The Great was perhaps his doing. He created Frederick as Frederick the Great. Well, what made him such a compelling figure? Yes, that's a very good question, and to which there are several answers. But the, the, the most important answer must be that he inherited a state which was, by the standards of the day, all these things are relative, by the standards of the day was efficiently administered and well governed and had a very large army. The army was over 80,000 in 1740, which made it uh, a, a, much, a much bigger player than Prussia's uh, relatively meagre economic resources would have, would have justified. So he inherits a state which is I suppose in the second rank of European powers, possibly in the third, but certainly in the second rank of European powers. And then in the course of just a, a quarter of a century between 1740 and 1763, he takes it bang, smack wallop right into the, uh, onto the high table, on, into the first division of European powers. And he does that in 1740 by uh, uh, invading and annexing the Habsburg province of Silesia, which is today in Poland. This was a tremendous coup. He had to fight to hang on to it, but by 1763, uh, it is clear that Silesia is going to be permanently Prussian. And that leads me to a kind of subset of why he is such a tremendously uh, exciting figure for contemporaries as well as for posterity was that in um, 1756, the ruler of the Habsburg monarchy, the Empress Maria Theresia, 
had put together one of the most um, powerful looking coalitions that had ever been seen in Europe. So this was a coalition of the Habsburg monarchy, France, Russia, Sweden, most of the princes of the Holy Roman Empire of the German nation, uh, and all Frederick had was a Great Britain, um, which did send an army, but most importantly sent money. So it, this was a real David and Goliath struggle. Uh, and this, in the Seven Years' War between 1756 and 1763, which I think Americans call the French and Indians War, uh, uh, the, all the various combatants fought themselves to a standstill. But when the dust settled, Silesia was still Prussian. And it was recognized by contemporaries that if that colossal, apparently invincible coalition should have blown Frederick away in the first campaign, had not been able to get Silesia back, then no one would be able to do so. And so Silesia was now permanently Prussian. And there's an important and often overlooked um, point to be made about that. And that is that if you take all the resources of Silesia, and they were very considerable, incidentally, the province supplied something like a quarter of all the Habsburg monarchy's tax revenue. It was bisected by the river Oder. It had all kinds of um, uh, agricultural, industrial, mineral resources, which made it the most flourishing part of that world, of the world, in that part of the world. If you take, if you, uh, take all those various assets and express them by the algebraic symbol X, then when Prussia took Silesia from Austria, the relationship between the two powers didn't change by X, but by 2X. So what had been taken away from Austria was given to Prussia. I hope you follow me. Uh, any um, football fans here, soccer fans, will know that um, this is a six-pointer. Yeah, okay, that was a six-pointer. So uh, that extraordinary feat in taking this immensely prosperous province away from a, 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 the Habsburg monarchy and making it permanently Prussian elevated him to superstar status um, within not, hard, not hardly overnight because he had to fight a long time to retain it but uh, in a relatively short period of time he, he has established himself as a, a great military hero. So that's the main reason I think why Frederick had a claim on contemporaries and on posterity but there, there were others. Uh, Want me to say something about that, or do you want to say? Uh, well, maybe, maybe tying it in, um, if, if maybe we can touch upon his lasting legacy as we look at it now from you know, our time from the year 2020. All right, okay. Europe we'll developed. Do that later, shall we? Yeah, his legacy. Uh, you want to talk, me to talk about his legacy now? Yeah, it, yeah, yes, coming off. Yes, absolutely. Yes. Okay, right. So, so the, 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 the legacy. Well, there are several um, of very long, uh, long-lasting legacy. Indeed, in some respects, they can be still be felt in Germany and Europe today. The most important um, in the medium, short and medium term, perhaps even long term too, was that he created what is known as dualism within the Holy Roman Empire of the German nation, which spread right across Europe from the North Sea to the Carpathians, uh, there had always been opposition 
to the Habsburg Emperor. The, uh, a member of the House of Habsburg was almost invariably Holy Roman Emperor, at least from the middle of the 15th century until the end, uh, with a brief period in the 1740s, which is too complicated to go into here. So the Habsburgs are the dominant dynasty, the dominant power in the Holy Roman Empire in German-speaking Central Europe. Uh, and traditionally, the, the princes of the Holy Roman Empire who resisted the power of the Habsburgs, and that was a, a permanent ongoing struggle, looked to France uh, to support them. But what Frederick did by establishing Prussia, which most of which was inside the Holy Roman Empire, by establishing Prussia as a great power, he created a, a, a mainly German pole to which the anti-Habsburg princes could look. Okay, that is known as dualism. There is a, a dual, uh, two centers of authority uh, inside Germany now. And that takes a long time to work itself out. It wasn't inevitable at all, but as it turns out, it is Prussia which came out top of the heap, although that doesn't become uh, entirely apparent until 1866, when the Prussians defeated the Austrians in that war of 1866, and then finished off the job by defeating France in 1871. That's when Bismarck created the first German, or the, really the second German empire after the Holy Roman Empire, uh, and created a sort of unified Germany. I mean, Germany isn't really unified in 1871 because German-speaking Austrians were still outside it. You say that Germany wasn't really united until 1938, or perhaps even if you want to include all German speakers, not until 1941. Uh, but nevertheless, a, a, a very powerful German state was created by Bismarck uh, in 1871, and that should be traced back clearly to the creation of dualism by Frederick Great in his success in the 17, those three Silesian wars of 1740 to 1763. So that's a that's a very important legacy. Um, let me try and put it another way. The Holy Roman Empire, for which I have great admiration, incidentally, uh, the Holy Roman Empire uh, had, uh, which we can trace back to um, Charlemagne's um, coronation in St. Peter's Cathedral on Christmas Day 800. So it's, as I said, it's been going for nearly a millennium over a millennium when it's killed off by Napoleon, the Holy Roman Empire was the soft center of Europe. Okay. It's the soft center because it's fragmented into all these various different prince bishoprics and principalities and dukedoms and all the, all, 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 all the rest of it. Well, what Frederick the Great started and what Bismarck finished uh, was to turn that soft center into a much harder center. So from 1871, it's become very hard indeed. And um, so when I said in, in my first remarks, I mean, the, the legacy of Frederick the Great in this sense can be felt until today. Although um, we, we must hope that uh, the European Union at least keeps the soft center, the center of Europe reasonably soft, at least long enough to see me out. 